Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I can't tell you how happy I am to be here this morning. I also want to welcome our West Campus ladies. Ladies, we're glad you're joining us at the West Campus today. Thank you all for choosing to be here this week. It is a great choice. It's a great choice. Many of you have heard me talk in the past, uh, many times probably, about the very first team of women that Christ Chapel sent to Africa in 2004 on a short-term mission trip. You know, our goal on that very first trip was to teach and train the women of East Africa who were leaders in their churches. We were doing a week-long conference with them. And as we prepared to take that very first trip, something that none of us had ever done before, at least in Africa, we had never done it, I really worked hard to make a list of every possible thing we might expect when we got off the airplane in Africa and met uh, these charming group of ladies we had never seen before. I worked hard to make that list, and I really worked hard to prepare our team to expect, to know what to expect when we got off the plane. My favorite saying as we prepared to go, um, and I still love it, I say it all the time, blessed are the flexible, for they shall bend and not break. Blessed are the flexible. Uh, I tried to think through every scenario, moment by moment. This is what would happen here. This is what would happen there. So we wouldn't be blindsided, uh, and it might interfere with our trip. In hindsight, which hindsight is always 2020, isn't it? In hindsight, what I should have done was far simpler, far simpler. In hindsight, I should have simply prepared all of us to just expect the unexpected. You know, make a list of every wild thing you could think that could ever happen and just carry that with you. Expect the unexpected. I want to give you some examples of that. As a team of women, um, there were nine of us, and we had 21 pieces of luggage. Now, that wasn't for us. We were carrying in Bibles, Swahili Bibles. We were carrying in Bible study materials. We were carrying in conference materials. So in my great wisdom, what I did was prepare us that after three plane changes when we landed in Africa, there might be a piece or two of luggage that wouldn't um, show up. What happened was actually very unexpected. Not one of the 21 pieces of luggage showed up. Not one. We all stood around this tiny little conveyor bale in a third world country and kept... I mean, we watched it after it was empty for a while, thinking, surely one of those 21 pieces of luggage was going to turn up. Another thing... I expected was that we would connect and build some relationships with the African people, that we would probably email with them after we left or keep those relationships going. What happened was something totally unexpected. We made a lifelong uh, friend with uh, one of the African pastors and his wife. We've gone back four more times to do ministry with them, but this is really the unexpected part. We met their son while we were there on that first trip. He was a delightful college guy by the name of JJ. 
So what the unexpected part is, is J.J. is now our Swahili pastor. He has here at Christ Chapel, he has an office around the corner from me. I see him almost daily. His baby was born in the hospital down the street, and his parents came, and I stood there with him and held that grandbaby. And I thought, 10 years ago, did I expect this when I got off the plane in Africa? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. My hard lesson from that first mission trip became when you do God's work expect the unexpected that's the best way to handle it expect the unexpected I've had a great time uh, journeying the last few weeks with Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey and what I discovered is that Paul did this so much better than I did he did it so much better than I did Paul encountered the unexpected at every turn on his first missionary journey. And it always seems like Paul expected nothing less. If it was the unexpected, that's exactly what Paul thought he was going to encounter. You know, it's actually Jesus who gives us all our very first clue that kingdom work might involve the unexpected. Look at our key verse in Acts. It's on your verse sheet. It is Acts 1.8. And this is Jesus. And he says, you will receive, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, the unexpected actually begins for Paul and Barnabas as they're called to take the gospel out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, out of Samaria to what Jesus calls here the end of the earth. You know, sharing the gospel in Jerusalem is something they had already been doing, and probably around Judea also. They may have even been in Samaria sharing the gospel. But sharing the gospel on this first missionary journey is really the end of the earth to them. That is unexpected for these two Jewish men. So open your Bibles with me to Acts 13. And let's take a lesson from Paul and Barnabas on how to really expect the unexpected as they leave Antioch and head on Paul's very first missionary journey. Let's read verses 1 through 5 together in chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Um, and when they arrived in Salamis, they produced, proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Um, you may want to take out, we've all got that great colored map of Paul's missionary journeys. You may want to check that out. And Douglas, I'm going to ask you to put that on the screen for us here if you don't have your map. What we're looking at is the black line, which is on the far right-hand side of your map. That black line is Paul's first missionary journey, and it starts up there in Antioch. Now, the church in Antioch is in Syria, and Syria and Antioch are actually due north of Jerusalem there on your map. You know, when the stoning of Stephen happened in Acts chapter 8, 
all the believers um, who were aware of that and knew of it became fearful. And after that persecution, they migrated out from Jerusalem. And they went north and west. They went into Phoenicia and uh, Cyprus and to Antioch. Now, Paul and Barnabas have been together in Antioch teaching the new disciples at the newly formed church in Antioch probably for a little more than a year. Now, the church in Jerusalem is at this point still the mother church, but the church in Antioch is growing day by day by day. Antioch is a major city in that uh, region. You might want to get out your Google someday and read about ancient Antioch. It's pretty phenomenal. And what a great place for this new church to be established. It's a great place for Paul to establish his home base for ministry. It's actually going to become the center of the newfound Christian world. So that's where they start, and it's here among the leadership of this new church in Antioch that the Holy Spirit directs these five men that we see right here in verses 1 through 5 to set apart Paul and Barnabas uh, for the work that God has for them. And that's exactly what they do. They're fasting. They're praying, and they send off Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul and Barnabas leave, along with Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, and they set sail to Cyprus, which is due west of where they are. Um, and probably because Cyprus is close to uh, Israel, they have a great number of Jews on the island of Cyprus. Uh, now, the... What we see here is the pattern of the beginning of Paul's ministry. He has a pattern, if you'll notice, take note of it as you read about Paul's journeys, is to go at the beginning of his ministry, is to go into the synagogues first. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is um, the message was actually sent to the Jews first. So he's going to go to where the greatest number of Jews are gathered, and that's at the local synagogue. So we'll have that audience. He's also going to have an audience of Gentiles because there are God-fearing Gentiles, those who believe in Yahweh, that go to the synagogue also. So Paul, when he travels, goes first to the synagogue to share God's truth about the Messiah. Um, Now, Dr. Luke, who writes Acts for us, really doesn't give us any indication in these first verses as they start out on this journey from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas, either one, express any doubt or dismay or surprise at this interruption uh, that this journey makes in their lives. What they act like is there's a job to be done in God's kingdom and they realize that God has personally written their name on it. So they're chosen and they're sent off. We also don't see them here, which I love. They don't protest their qualifications, do they? If you think back to Exodus, Moses stuttered around and said, Whoa, 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 I don't want to do this. I'm not qualified. I can't speak. Paul and Barnabas don't say that here. They don't protest their qualifications to go. They don't protest their finances. I can only imagine that a trip of this magnitude, which they really don't know the scope of it yet, they're being directed by the Holy Spirit, this would amount to a great amount of money, and they don't stop and say, whoa, where's the cash in my pocket before I leave? They also don't um, talk about bad timing in their personal lives. They don't say, you know, I I had a dinner planned with my friends next week or I had something else on my calendar. As believers, they have a passion for the message to be spread. And it seems that Paul and Barnabas must expect this unexpected call to kingdom work that requires them to leave Antioch almost immediately. 
you know, as we are here today, centuries later, we can look at Paul and Barnabas' example and really learn from it. Just like these two great men, all of us that sit here today and all of us at West Campus, we should expect as believers to also be called to kingdom work. We should expect that in our lives. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 19 on your verse sheet. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He starts off, Jesus does, uh, as he leaves his disciples here at the end of Matthew and saying, Go therefore, making disciples and sharing uh, with others the truth about Jesus is the kingdom work we've all been called to. Every single one of us have this truth in our lives. But it looks different for all of us. It looks different for all of us. And it depends on our gift mix, our personalities, even our stage in life and our personal responsibilities. It may look like serving as a small group leader. And many of you out there today, uh, that is the call to kingdom work in your life. And you have answered it with a yes. It may look like volunteering for kids camp. Kathy Burr would be happy that I'm saying that here this morning. That may that is kingdom work to be involved in kids camp. It may be going on a short-term mission trip. It may be raising our kids and our grandkids to know Jesus. That is kingdom work in our lives. And it may be that every single day when we get up in the morning, we know that we need to share the gospel by living out our life with our coworkers and our neighbors in a way that the truth is evident. Everyday living is kingdom work also. Uh, and just as Paul and Barnabas, they have trusted God with this unexpected interruption in their life uh, to do kingdom work. We can do the same. We can trust God with those un- in unexpected interruptions in our life to do kingdom work. I recently ask several of our great women here at Christ Chapel to go with me to El Salvador in a few weeks because we have an opportunity to teach and to train the Bible study leaders in the church in El Salvador that we're connected to. You know, for every single one of these ladies I approached, it was an unexpected interruption in their busy, well-planned lives. Just like me each and you, each of them have a calendar that's packed. So when I said, hey, get on a plane with me and let's go to El Salvador and teach... You know what they all did? They kind of looked at me and blinked. You know how when someone does, you know, you just kind of blink and think, did I hear you right? Um, They heard me right. And you know what? They all, after a couple of blinks, said, I'm going to pray about it, but I think the answer is probably yes. Unexpected interruptions in our lives to do kingdom work, they give us an opportunity to trust God with our finances, to trust God with our schedules to trust God with our families, and certainly to trust God with our abilities. Look at Jeremiah 29.11 on your verse sheet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Paul's example, even centuries later, is that we should expect to be called to kingdom work. Okay, let's read some more. Let's start at verse 6 and read down through verse 12. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named 
Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, so look at your map again with me. They've traveled from one end of the island of Cyprus to Paphos. It's approximately uh, 90 miles. And through that whole 90 miles, they have been sharing the message of salvation wherever they wherever they went. And when they got to that west end of the island of um, Cyprus, they meet a Roman proconsul. Now, a Roman proconsul is a government official. He's a lot like a governor. And they meet um, this man that's with him that seems to probably be his assistant. Uh, he's called a, a sorcerer, a magician, a Jewish false prophet. And what that means when they call someone a false prophet is that they claim to be a prophet of God but they're not. They're totally not. Now, the proconsul, it says here in the text, is a pretty smart guy. He's a smart guy. He's heard of their teaching probably as they approached the west end of that island. He began to hear talk about what was going on wherever Paul and Barnabas taught, and he wants to hear it for himself. There's something about that word of God that probably pricks him a little bit. So he calls them because he can. He calls them to, to himself because he wants to hear them say it to him. He wants the word of God um, to hear it himself. But uh, this sorcerer, his assistant, um, he immediately goes to work to put up a big roadblock so that uh, Paul and Barnabas cannot get uh, to the proconsul to share. We don't know whether that's because he has this lucrative uh, job being a false prophet with the proconsul, probably telling him things that are not true and possibly being paid for it, or whether because he's involved in um, with evil spirits and the dark arts that uh, the spirits that he works with oppose the real gospel message. We don't know what it is. But regardless, he doesn't want the proconsul to hear the truth of God's word. But we see in verse 9, it is going to be more, it is going to take more than some roadblock uh, in Paul's path to stop him. He jumps right over whatever barrier this uh, sorcerer puts up, and he never misses a beat. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, oh, no, this is going to be hard. He's just filled with the Holy Spirit, and he takes this guy on head on. He accuses him of being a fraud. He accuses him of being full of deceit. He accuses him of making the straight path, which is the word of God and the way of God, crooked. Now, there is one important thing in verse 9 I want you to take note of here, and that, and that is that this is where Luke 
first introduces Saul by his Greek name, Paul. Now, probably um, Saul was given two names by his parents when he was born. He was given the Jewish name Saul, and he was also given a, um, a Greek name, which was Paul. Uh, when he was um, in that Jewish synagogue, he was called Saul, and other places he may have been called Paul. But the significance of Luke changing here right now in kind of the middle of the stream from Saul to Paul seems to be that it is on this first missionary journey that Paul takes when his ministry to the Gentiles really begins and picks up speed. From here on out, we're going to see Paul involved with sharing the uh, gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul, with the Holy Spirit here, he totally prevails with this sorcerer. He not only calls him all these names that he deserves, but he also displays God's amazing supernatural power by blinding the magician. And this is a a great result of God's power, uh, is that the proconsul believes. He's heard the word of God, and now he sees the power of God And those are things he cannot deny. He cannot deny. Um, He comes to salvation. Now what we should be encouraged by this morning, centuries later as we sit here, also called to kingdom work, is that Paul isn't dismayed. He's not disheartened when this um, evil sorcerer tries to put a roadblock to God's truth in his path. It doesn't slow him down. He doesn't pack up his bags and go back to Antioch. Paul's example to us is that when we encounter unexpected opposition, and we will when we're involved in kingdom work, we simply need to depend on God. Now, we don't have the apostolic ability to blind people. That would be great, wouldn't it? Whenever someone gets in the way of the word of truth, we could just... uh, cause that mist to fall over them. We don't have that apostolic ability that Paul has. But we do have the Holy Spirit. We do have the Word of God. We do have other believers that pray with us and for us. And that is going to allow us, when we do kingdom work, to go over and under and around every single roadblock we face. Look at John 16:33 on your verse sheet. And I have said these things to you, that in me... You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And of course, that is Jesus talking to his disciples. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, just under that. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, in these two verses right here, Jesus reminds us of two great things. He reminds us of who he is. And he reminds us of who God is. And when we remember who Jesus is and who God is, there is not a roadblock in the world that can stop the word of God. Jesus has overcome the world, and with God, nothing is impossible. Remember those 21 pieces of luggage that we did not get in Africa? Um, They were filled with Bibles that we needed. Those African women had never had Bibles before. And we were so disappointed that they were not on that conveyor belt when we needed them. Well, there was nothing else we could do uh, in Africa but pray. Uh, We prayed. Our African team members on the ground prayed. Some of you back home that were keeping up with us prayed. 
And you know what happened? Those pieces of luggage gradually showed up in that third world airport. I have no idea how. We couldn't understand the people that were in charge of the luggage. They couldn't figure out. We didn't have the right luggage tags. But they all showed up. Just like Paul, we should expect roadblocks when we do kingdom work. And just like Paul, what we do is we depend on God's power when we meet unexpected opposition. Okay, let's read, uh, let's keep reading. Let's read in Acts 13, verses 13 through 16. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Listen. Paul and Barnabas, if you'll look at your map again, have traveled um, from Cyprus. They've traveled kind of northwest all up the coast there to Antioch and Pisidia, uh, which is different from the Antioch in Syria where they started. Once again, they follow Paul's pattern of going into the synagogue wherever he stops. And guess what? The rulers of the synagogue um, kind of throw him a home run pitch here because what they do is they say, hey, if you've got anything to say, any encouragement, just stand up and do it. Well, Paul has met the living Christ on the road to Damascus, and he knows that he's now his witness. Of anybody in the whole world, Paul has something to say, doesn't he? Paul has something to say. So in verse 17, he takes advantage of this unexpected audience, and he begins what is the longest of his three sermons that we have right here in the book of Acts that Luke records. Now, it's very similar to Peter's sermon that we looked at back in chapter 2. It's very similar to Stephen's sermon that we looked at back in Acts 7. You know, basically, in this long sermon, he does a great survey of Israel's history. I hope you had an opportunity to read it. If you think, I'm really not an Old Testament scholar, this is a great place to kind of follow through what has really happened with Israel's history. And so Paul begins by telling them about the key people. He tells them about the key events. He recounts the history of Israel that these people that are sitting there are already familiar with. And his basic message to them is, you know your history, you know what God has done for the nation of Israel. But he's not simply there to give them a history lesson, is he? He knows that his real message to them is the message of salvation, and he doesn't leave that out. He shares new truths with them after he tells them about what God has done for the nation of Israel. Some of those truths, there's one in verse 23 where he tells them, you may want to circle that. We're not going to read all this because we don't have the time to read through all the text. But you might want to circle verse 23 because it's in verse 23 that he says to them, you know, God promised you a savior and he's already brought him and his name is Jesus. He tells them that. That is new information for the synagogue audience right there. In verse 26, you may want to circle that too, Paul tells them, that the message of salvation has not simply been sent to the Jews. It's been sent to the Gentiles too. He calls the Jews in verse 26 the sons of the family of Abraham. 
But he refers to the Gentiles here too where he says, those among you who fear God. That's talking about the Gentiles. And that is definitely a new truth for the synagogue uh, crowd. He goes on then to give them a play-by-play narration of what's happened to the Messiah that God promised and brought in the name of Jesus. He says, and he does just what Peter and Stephen did. He talks about the conviction, arrest, near and execution of Jesus. And he lays all that right at the feet of the Jewish leaders. Peter and Stephen did that same thing. After that, he uses some Old Testament prophecy. Because he's told them that they have executed the Messiah. But he also wants them to know that what they uh, meant for harm, God meant for good. Because he uses Psalm 2 and the prophecy in Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16 to show them that even though they intended for the Messiah to die. God did not. And he resurrected him. He has raised him from the dead. After the resurrection, he points out that there's proof that the resurrection happened because witnesses actually saw Jesus. So you can't deny that God has raised the Messiah from the dead because there were people that he appeared to. Paul tells them that. Now, in verses 38 and 39, he um, moves into the realm of what brings about uh, forgiveness of sins. And he says to them, you know, the law of Moses cannot forgive sins because uh, the forgiveness of sins is not from the law of Moses because the law doesn't offer any opportunity forgiveness. Forgiveness, Forgiveness of sins only comes from the message of salvation. So he's saying to them right there, you have hung your hat on the wrong hook. We all should be looking for the Messiah who has been resurrected from the dead, who came to save Jews and Gentiles, who was met people after he was resurrected and offers forgiveness of sins. So when the rulers of the synagogue offered Paul the opportunity to speak, what did he do? He takes it. He takes it. And he hits a home run with it. He's not afraid. He's not unprepared. He doesn't hesitate. He grabs hold of it. And he speaks to this unexpected audience. And because he does that, look what happens in verses 42 through 49. Look what happens. Let's read. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. He's told them all these new truths that uh, God has brought the Messiah you asked for. His name is Jesus. He came to save Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish leaders uh, arrested him and executed. But God raised him from the dead and now he offers you forgiveness of sins. And the people begged to hear that again. Verse 43 says, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke urge them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. And then drop your eyes down to verse 48. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So Paul jumps at the chance to share these new truths with uh, the old crowd at the synagogue when it's offered to him. 
And it turns into an even bigger audience. He took advantage of that one unexpected audience having no idea that the very next week the entire city would turn out to hear his message. The text tells us that from that message to the whole city, then it spread to the whole region. I love this graphic that's on the cover of your notebook. Uh, it's, I think it's a dandelion stem. Somebody told me that was a dandelion. And you know how when you blow on it or the wind blows on it, the seeds scatter so far you have no idea where they are. They scatter in the wind. But as you look over at your neighbor's yard, it's filled with the same dandelion um, that yours are. And on and on and on. It's a great visual of what happens when we take advantage of unexpected audiences, regardless of of who it is or where it is, we share the message of God's truth and the message of salvation. Those unexpected audiences that Paul had, first in the synagogue, then in the city, then throughout the whole region, spread the gospel like a dandelion in the wind. Look at 1 Peter 3.15 on your verse sheet. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, doing it with gentleness and respect. And then look at um, 2 Timothy 4.2. And this is Paul writing this to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort and complete, with complete patience and testing. You know, that out of season reminds me. I'm always thinking, well, if I'm prepared, I'm really, I'll do this. But it's those out of season times when you're thinking, that took me by surprise. I had an example of that recently. I was introduced to a couple that I'd never met before in another city. It was a mutual acquaintance. It was that kind of friend of a friend. And before we were introduced, my friend said to me, oh, you're going to love these people. They live here. They, um, this is where they go to church. They're, um, they were my age. Uh, And then they kind of randomly shared, oh, yeah, and they've been invited to be on the board of an an organization. They told me the name of the organization. It happens to be an organization that I am not particularly fond of because I believe that this organization um, boldly misrepresents Jesus and the word of God. But I didn't say anything. Um, So when uh, I was introduced to this other couple, it was totally a social setting. We're chatting about the weather. We're chatting about our grandchildren, about where we live. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, this gentleman that I've just met leans over to me and says, what do you think of this organization that we've been invited to be on the board of? I was, it, it took me totally by surprise. I was not expecting a spiritual conversation and I was not expecting it in this setting with people that I had just been introduced to. Um, and what happened is everyone kind of leaned in then. It was one of those moments where you think, what do I say next? But I didn't have any choice except to share the gospel and to share why I felt like Jesus was being misrepresented and uh, the evidence that I w- was convicted of that um, they were misguided about the truth of God's word. Uh, so the um, conversation ended and um, 
there, there, nobody came to blows. They heard what I had to say. And everybody got up. And this wife comes over to me in the corner and whispers to me, Thank you for sharing that. We needed to hear it. We needed to hear it. It was the last thing I wanted to do. And it was so unexpected. Uh, but I was able to take full advantage of it. And I think the results will be worth it. Paul and Barnabas do the same thing. Every unexpected audience they take advantage of. Unfortunately, their travels are not all fun and games. So let's read a few more verses and find out what happens to them. Look at uh, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples filled with the joy and... And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbes, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. For believers who live out their faith before um, an unbelieving world, sharing Jesus and persecution kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. And certainly in Paul's day, when you saw one, you were more than likely to see another. But persecution never stops Paul. It never stops Paul in any account we have of, of him. Instead, he takes courage and he perseveres. And look what happens after they flee um, Iconium and head to Lystra and Derby. Drop your eyes down to verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, not only does Paul persevere after a beating so severe that everyone thinks he's dead. He goes on. He gets up and goes on to Derby and preach. And then he returns to every single city uh, that he's been to in the past that has given him dis, uh, difficulty, to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, the very cities that have been so dangerous for him. And he works to build the churches there. He gives them organization. He gives them teaching. He gives them leadership. Now, Paul is a former esteemed member of the Jews that have persecuted Christians. So I believe that more than anyone else, Paul expects persecution. He's been on the other side of the fence. He knows that it's not going to stop. 
But he also understands that persecution serves to grow a spirit of endurance and perseverance in our lives. Look at Jesus' own words in Matthew 10. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus tells us that persecution will come, and when it does, he tells us to endure to the end. He says, don't stop your ministry because of perseverance. Just pack up, go on to the next town, continue your ministry until I come back. That's really what Jesus is saying here. Just keep on going. Paul writes about his persecution to Timothy uh, in, in this very persecution in 2 Timothy 3. Um, look on your uh, verse sheet. This is Paul. He says, You, however, having followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Notice he doesn't say everyone that does something um, uh, unique for Christ. He says everyone that just lives their life for Christ is going to be persecuted. You know, persecution isn't a real struggle for us today in Fort Worth, Texas, is it? But I think it's a lesson from Paul's life that we cannot overlook because if you watch the news at all today, in fact, we heard that um, uh, text message that Kathy shared with us a little while ago. Persecution exists in our world and it is growing. And our response to that reality, according to Paul, doesn't need to be fear. It needs to be perseverance and endurance to keep on sharing God's truth um, and trust that God will rescue us. I don't know about you, but when I saw those images of those 21 men on that beach that were being beheaded for their faith, my first response was to be simply ill. It was um, probably one of the most unexpected things I've ever seen in my life, and I was horrified for days after that just thinking about it. But you know what happened after I processed what was happening to my brothers and sisters around the world? I began to feel this growing resolve more than ever to continue to share Jesus, to continue to share Jesus so that that kind of evil is not going to prevail in the world. Paul teaches us unexpected persecution should be met with nothing less than endurance, perseverance, and resolve. Okay, let's finish up with Paul on his journey. Verse 24, chapter 14. Then they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had uh, been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. If you look at your map, you can see they trace their steps all the way back. They don't go back to Cyprus. They just take a sea journey back. And they arrive in Antioch at the church in Syria that has sent them off. And everyone there, I believe, gathers to hear from them, to pat them on the back, to give them a hug and to celebrate. 
They've probably been gone somewhere between a year and a half and two years. They've traveled 500 miles by sea and 700 miles by land. Now, in their day, that was quite a journey. But more important than how far they've traveled is how much life change has resulted from that journey. That's how they're measuring their journey. Not by miles, but by life change. And Luke is careful here as he finishes up chapter 14 to not um, uh, talk simply about Paul and Barnabas and how amazing they are. But what he talks about is commending God for the work that his servants, Paul and Barnabas, have been. I can only imagine the excitement at the church in Antioch because I think Paul kind of gives them a blow-by-blow description of their journey. Um, He shares town by town how people responded to the message and how many lives were changed. I want you to look back real quick with me at one instance of life change in verse 14 that we didn't look look at, but it's pretty astounding. Look back at verse 8. It says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. That is life change, isn't it? That is life change that happened to this disabled man. And it came through his belief in faith and the teaching that Paul was doing. Uh, Another dramatic instance of life change that Paul, I think, recounts to this church in Antioch is when he talks about the proconsul and um, the the fact that he believed... uh, the message that Paul was teaching. And at the end of chapter 13, where we just talked about how whole regions of Gentiles came to the truth, that is life change. We can actually sum up Paul's first missionary journey with verse 27, where it says, um, at the very end, where it says, they declared all God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul's first missionary journey ends with rejoicing because God's plans have been fulfilled and lives have been changed. God's plans have been fulfilled and lives have been changed. Paul and Barnabas went when God called them. They overcame unexpected opposition with God's power. They shared the gospel with every unexpected audience that was presented to them. They encountered and endured persecution over and over again. All they did was simply expect the unexpected. That's all they did every step of the way. And the result of that, the result of that was that God's grace went before them and opened that unexpected door of faith to the Gentiles. That's a pretty amazing result from simply expecting the unexpected. You know, with their example in our minds to spur us on, we can be women who live out our faith simply getting up every day and expecting the unexpected when it comes to God's kingdom. We can pray for it. We can look for it. We can act on it. And after we do, we can wait for God himself to open the doors of faith wherever we go. Pray with me. 
Father, it's amazing to see how you raised up Paul and Barnabas and you put kingdom work in their hands and you never left their side. You never left their side. Lord, we're asking that we would be women who uh, follow their example, who do exactly what they did, who get up every day expecting the unexpected, who willingly take on the call of kingdom work, who speak to every unexpected audience, who overcome opposition with the power of your word. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus and the fact that he has given us forgiveness of sins. I thank you for these women. I ask that the women that are not with us today um, be protected and encouraged by you. And I pray that as we go out, we will come back next week um, filled with the grace of God and, and being able to testify about the doors of faith you've opened. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.